You are listening to audio sermons from Winchester Family Church. For more information, go to www.winfam.org. This is the last one of our deeper series on Ephesians. And uh, we're going to look at the weapons of our warfare this morning. I want to read the passage that Steve would have uh, started talking into last week. I heard him on, online. It was very good. I know that he's talked about the armour and standing firm. I'm actually going to pick up the weapons, but I want to read the whole thing in context. So let's read from verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, what we get out of this passage, we get masses out of it, but there's some really important fundamental facts. One is, we are in a spiritual battle. And it's a real battle. It's not an imagined one. It's not like just a nice metaphor. There are real enemies who are not flesh and blood. Real enemies who are not flesh and blood. And so when we have difficulties and challenges in life, people do stuff they shouldn't. We do stuff we shouldn't. But that is not always the full story. There is an enemy beyond flesh and blood. And our main battle, as Paul says, is not really against flesh and blood, but against those rulers and powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now that would be, and is, and to a degree is, scary. And it is scary. But then we get into the rest of the passage we've just read, which reminds us that God is for us, and he who is with us is greater than he who is in the world. And God is strengthening back. If we will go with him, he will help us. And he has given us armor for protection, the full armor of God. But he's also given us some weapons. And we're going to look at those this morning in a moment. And actually, we are not merely in a defensive position. Actually, we can cause the devil to run. James 4 verse 7 says, resist resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't merely hold him off. You can actually take ground from him. You can cause him to flee and back off. And I think it's worth remembering that this morning because that's the angle I want to work out a little bit with you. Yes, we have got some magnificent armor and we're fools if we don't use it. This armour that Steve would have mentioned last week and is clearly written there is called the armour of God. It's armour provided by God. 
But I think there's probably another angle to that. It is the armour of God. And if I was speaking on an introduction on this, I would want to take you to Isaiah 11. We're not even going to go there. Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 5. I want to take you to Isaiah 59 verses 15 to 17 to see the warlike prophetic picture of the Messiah the warlike Messiah pictures, there is a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is Jesus' armour. And that actually we are given God's own armour. We're allowed to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have uh, that ground to stand on. This is a lot more than just a sort of little metaphor. It's saying, God said to you, here's some protection. Here's something that will make a significant difference in the battle. So when the devil comes against me or you, he should not be that confident. Because think of an old medieval battle and you're approaching someone in armor. They're pretty intimidating in armor anyway. But if they're wearing the same armor Jesus wore, they're wearing Jesus' armour, I think the devil must wonder what he's dealing with. If, he's got a, if we've got a whole army of people dressed in the armour of God, we are going to do some serious damage to the kingdom of darkness. We are moving out as Jesus would have moved out. Now, we not only have the protective armour of, of God, we have some weapons provided by God. And the two main ones, which are mentioned here, they are not the only weapons. There are other things. If you want to do a, and I have done, of course, at one time, because it's interesting to look at all the study of all the things that you could call your weapons. I mean, there's the blood of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Just to give you some example. There's other things you can dig into. But these are two key ones, and they are mentioned in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and in verse 18, praying in the Spirit, on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. So two of our offensive weapons with which we not only parry off blows but we advance the kingdom and push the enemy back are the word of God and prayer both linked to the Holy Spirit. So the word spirit in verse 17 is with a capital S as you will see the sword of the spirit and in verse 18 pray in the spirit with a capital S so they are both linked to the Holy Spirit they're both linked to the Holy Spirit and we're simply going to spend this morning looking at those two so first of all I want to talk about the sword of the spirit this is one of our key offensive weapons in spiritual warfare not only to parry and defend us from the attacks of the enemy, which a sword does, parries blows, but actually to advance and do the enemy damage and destruction and press forward. We not only, as I say, defend, we also attack. We can make progress against Satan and his schemes. We can see strongholds crumble in our lives, in our church life, in our corporate life, in our city life, in our nation life. I believe demonic strongholds can fall. They can be destroyed. We can see Satan's grip, his dominion loosened. Loosened in our own lives, loosened in lives around us. Darkness, the kingdom of darkness, can be shaken by the kingdom of God. Prisoners can be set free. They don't just have to be taken some sort of uh, 
uh, meal to keep them comfortable in prison. They can be set free. It's not merely a case of them surviving in their prison and their chains. It's liberation. The gospel brings liberation from the forces of darkness. Do you agree? You should agree, and I know you do, but I want you to say it because you need to get it into your spirit. This is not only about defending ourselves. This is about taking ground from the enemy. Now, clearly, we do not fight this battle. It's a powerful enemy, merely in our own strength, with our own wits and our own energy and willpower, shall we say. God has provided some very powerful weaponry. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is one of them, and we'll see prayer in a moment. So in verse 17, it says this, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, some of you may have heard me speak on this before. I'm really going to make no apology because if you are a decent soldier, you will frequently go through routine training. And I know that. I'm sure that Barry told me that. Barry, I hope I haven't completely misrepresented you, wherever you are. As you even get more senior and everything else, you go through routine training. Where is Barry? Heidi. Do you... You do, as a senior officer near to retirement. You still do. You still have to because you need to know how to use your weapon. And probably at times, without wishing to embarrass you, Barry, when you stand there as a senior officer learning how to take your rifle apart and put it back together again, you probably feel slightly slow and wrong-footed as you put your glasses on to see where the bolt goes uh, when you've got all these young soldiers around you. But you have got to know how to use your weaponry. So there is no apology for that. Now let's dig in and work out what it's about. The word used for word here in Verse 17 is rhema, not logos. Now, you can overstretch that, the point, but you can underplay that. Words are chosen for a purpose. When Paul's writing, he chooses the word he uses for a purpose. It is not an irrelevant choice. Rhema is used. Now, listen to Gordon Fee, who is a a commentator, a scholar, writing in God's empowering presence. Here's a quote. The use of rhema... The word of God here in this verse puts the emphasis on that which is spoken at a given point. So the emphasis is on speaking the word. That's the emphasis. Logos tends to suggest the eternal word, the everything about God and God's word, unchanging. Rema suggests a now spoken use of God's word. And the emphasis in this verse, in the terms of weapons, is on speaking forth the content of God's word empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul is identifying the sword not with a book. And sometimes I was brought up in Christian circles where we talked about this is our sword. Well, to be more accurate, this is the sheath with the sword in it. The sword is not the book. It's the words that come from the book in our hearts and in our mouths, that's when it becomes a sword. You've got to pull it out the sheath and use it. We haven't got a superstitious belief in this book, you know, that it wards off vampires and that if we wear it over our heart, we will never be killed in war because the bullets won't hit us. And, you know, we sleep with it under our pillow to keep the ghosts away. Now, that isn't the way you use the Bible. And it's not worship. It's not a precious, oh, you know, on a golden cushion and carried in by a load of 
brightly dressed people and we all bow to the book. No, 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 that isn't what we do with our book. This is just a book. We write it, we read it, but it contains something powerful. It's got to come out of the book, it's got to come into your heart, and it's got to come out of your mouth. And when it does that, it will do serious damage to the kingdom of darkness. The emphasis is on speaking. Speaking the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Proclaiming God's word. Proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ in the face of darkness, in the face of oppression, in the face of temptation, in the face of sickness. Speaking it and seeing it break through darkness and deal with the works of darkness. The Word of God is more than a book with print. It's more than just a Bible or printed on a screen. Just to get a sense of this, look at this powerful image from Revelation 1. This is the risen Jesus. Amongst the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. This is awesome. And with a golden sash around his chest. His hair on his head was like white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters, thunderous noise. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, this is not really about a clumsy image that gets so way down the track that you think, well, there's a funny picture of this bloke with a great... And obviously medieval artists try to do it like that and all the rest of it. Great sword waving around outside his... You know, but it's about his word. His spoken word is like a sharp two-edged sword. And you will find this again and again. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is creative. When God created things at the beginning, he spoke. How did God create? He had from himself, his concept, if you like, of creation was in himself, And if I can put it reverently like that, in faith, God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be the earth. And there was earth. And the Holy Spirit actualized what God spoke. That's how it is. The Holy Spirit's sort of hovering, waiting for God to speak. God speaks and in an incredible way creates at the same time. As he speaks, he creates. The Bible tells us in, a, in Isaiah again that the word of God never returns empty, never returns without accomplishing what God wants it to accomplish. The word of God is powerful and effective and it works in total harmony with the spirit. They are interdependent. The spirit moves on the word to actualize. Obviously, there is a coherence because we're talking about one being, God. But as God speaks, the spirit actualizes what he speaks. It brings it to pass. As I've said many times, the, the, the word is the course, the spirit is the source. The spirit empowers the word, the word directs the spirit. Word and spirit are powerfully linked in the Bible. Can I just remind you of that little uh, vision thing Paul, um, P- Paul, Peter, George, Harry, Steve has been talking about recently. Uh, we're, we're now ba- not in prayer of the spirit, we're the one before that, there's the circles, that's it. And in talking about culture, we put word and spirit because it is fundamental to getting the culture right in the church. 
We must hold these two together. It's biblical. Word and spirit are an important part. You remember with these three circles, uh, we're not saying uh, that some things may be more of an emphasis on one and the other, but ideally we try to bring that sweet spot in the middle where, where things are drawn towards like the center of the cricket bat, where you can hit them straight and true. And so we're always looking to see, can, does this fulfill our building community, our creating culture, our communicating the good news by demonstration or declaration? How can we make it a little more into the sweet spot? Some things will be more in one circle than another. But one of those fundamental truths is word and spirit. We want, in whatever we do, to be very, very word-centered and based, and very, very open to the Holy Spirit and moving in the Spirit. And they are not mutually exclusive. Uh, let's, just, let's just linger here for a moment. Let's just ming- linger for a moment. Remember that this book, this document, is a human product at one level. It's written by real human beings and their humanity shows through. There are clear differences in the style and writing of the characters and their background is very obvious. And yet the Bible tells us, 2 Timothy 3.16, that it's God-breathed, that God-breathed what's here. We haven't got everything they all wrote. We haven't got everything Paul wrote. There are letters clearly we haven't got. You can pick that up. But God wanted us to have these bits. They had in them something of the authority of God, something that led to people finding God's word in it, finding the power and revelation of God's word. It's been tested over thousands of years. It's gathered together over. This is a, a series of books. It's not one book. Gathered over 1,600 years. It, it, it's all from different, 44 different writers. And yet there's something of God drawing it all together. And there's a recognition of authority and power that's come through the centuries, through the millennia. And so that Jesus would have used and recognized the Old Testament, as we'd call it. And then in the New Testament, a similar process as the church found God's word in it. And we recognize, as Peter did that in his letter, 2 Peter 1.21, that these people spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, to open the Bible and get the word living like a sword is more than an intellectual exercise. You do use your brain and you do think about what you're doing. But you need to submit to the Spirit. Again, time doesn't allow me to dig in to the degree I'd like. But if you're interested, you perhaps might want to remind yourself of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 14, where it talks about us needing to learn spiritual things through our spirit, that God wants to communicate to your spirit his word, because he's going to get it in you that you speak it in a way that makes it a weapon of warfare and defense and attack. Basically, when you hear the word, really hear it in your spirit, faith comes. Now, this is mysterious, but faith comes by hearing the word of God. Now, why do I say it's mysterious? Because I have experienced this innumerable times in my Christian life. That I know passages of scripture and I really do intellectually know them. I could argue quite coherently about their setting and, and, and give you some detail on them. And then there came a point where I really got it. And faith came. I can still remember that happening for me with Romans 6. I can still remember getting it. I, you know, if I'm in Christ, then I'm a new 
creation, that's, not, that's actually 2 Corinthians, but another time I got that, a different time. But the bit about sin shall not have dominion over you, you're not, you're not, in law, you know, you're not under the law, you're now in grace. And, and the whole thing of what's happened to me in Christ, under discipline here, or I'll discipline myself or I'll preach you another sermon without, without knowing. But somehow the thing just clicked. I can remember seeing it and believing it. That's the point. Faith coming. Faith coming. It's like the Spirit said, lit it up. Said, that's true. I can remember it happening with the Holy Spirit, with the kingdom of God, with church truths. I think innumerable things over the years. And, and you think, well, I thought I knew that. But somehow the Spirit communicates it. Now, that's what I'm talking about. The only way that will happen is if you put yourself in the way of it happening, which is coming to listen to people preaching, one way, listening to it maybe online, reading it, because you're trying to get the sword out of the sheath into you. That's what you're trying to do. You're, 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 you're giving opportunity for the Holy Spirit to help you to understand it, to hear it, and faith to come. This book is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. The end is that you hear the truth, believe it, and live by it. That's the end, not to read a book. The end is that you hear it, believe it, live by it. And that is how Jesus was. So when Jesus was tempted by the devil, he was showing us how to use the sword. He quotes the Bible. But it's not a mechanical quote. It's not, ooh, devil, look. It's not like that. He's living it. He believes it. So he said, man doesn't live by bread alone. Clear off. When the devil said, you know, the devil says, go on, show yourself. Jump from the top. And she said, said, I'm not going to test God. We're told not to test God. I'm not tempting God. I don't do tricks for God to prove himself. I mean, that's what Jesus is just living and applying the word. Living and applying the word. And that's how he counterattacks back. And that's how we do. It becomes a sword in those circumstances. And we've got to learn how to do that. We've got to learn, folks. We've got to learn, um, you know, how to draw on it. And I think I'd be very practical. You may have an overwhelming sense of fear crushing you. You might need to draw on, for example, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. You might need to literally quote it. You might need to sometimes sense that you need to rebuke a demonic attack, a spirit of fear. So I do not believe that sort of fear or any fear like that would come from God. So I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. That's using your sword. You say, do you actually, I talk like that. So I don't see why you shouldn't. And you, you actually do it sometimes. I don't do it all day, every day. But I do do it sometimes. I try and discern how to use the word of God. Sometimes it's prayer, sometimes that. Maybe you feel God is far from you. Don't feel God even knows you exist. But you are a follower of Jesus. You are a believer. I'm talking about people like that. But you think, I don't even feel God knows I exist. Well, get into the word. Read some of it. Read Hebrews where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5, 6. Read he- uh, Romans 8 at the end of it, 31, 39. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Read it. Quote it. Pray it. Say, Lord, I feel flat as a pancake, but thank you. You've promised you'll never leave me and forsake me. So I know whatever's going on, you haven't left me or forsaken me. Now, as you voice that, that's Rima. It's as you voice it, that it becomes a sword. Not when you're intellectually trying to grasp it. Do I really understand this? I better learn Greek to see if I can understand it more. Oh, go away. Don't be so stupid. Get hold of it. Somebody else has done all that work for you. Get hold of your Bible. Believe it and use it. 
I'm all for a bit of Greek if you're that way inclined. But that isn't what you need. What you need is in you believing it, using it. Like, oh, this is a very sharp sword. I wonder how they formed the steel. I'd really like to do a study on the steel of this sword. Oh, my goodness, that's not... Get hold of the sword and chop someone up with it. (laughs) You've got it. You've got it. You've got to learn to wield it. Don't just keep analysing it. I know some people say, I really want to get it. I know you really want to get it, and I love it. I really want to get it. If you're wired that way, that will work. But it's still got to be a sword. It still has. I'm not anti-intellectual. Spirit-filled, word-filled Christians are powerful. And I honestly believe that Satan's strategy is to keep Christians weak in one or ideally in both. Honestly, it's as simple as that. Because if you are a powerful enemy when you're equipped this way, if, I had, if, if the devil has any brains at all, he's going to stop you getting equipped that way. So it is not a surprise to me that historically, historically this is repeatedly true that there is a sustained attack, for example, on the Word of God. In every generation, everywhere, an attack on its integrity, its reliability, its relevance, its truth, its power, its basic clear meaning. There is always an attack on it. It can come in all sorts of different ways. It can be dressing up in religious flammery, or it can be an anti-intellectual thing, or you know, an intellectual attack, anti-Bible. But it's to undermine your confidence in the Bible and God's Word. That's one thing. Equally, repeatedly, there'll be demonic attack on the power of the Holy Spirit, on the relevance of him at all, not even bothered to preach about him in some churches. My background, I hardly remember hearing about it. Or on on the filling of the Holy Spirit, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or his manifest presence, or signs and wonders, repeatedly will be attacked through history. And if possible, the devil would like to neutralize both. So you don't really expect the Holy Spirit to believe in him much, and you don't have much respect for the Word of God. That's a win-win for him. But if you're on one, he'll try and make sure you see it as totally important and the other one's irrelevant. So it's word, 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 or it's spirit, 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 and I don't really want the other one. Because the combination is the worst one for the devil. The worst one. And quite often in personal Christian life, and this is a little nearer to the bone for you lot and for me, the devil's strategy will basically be the same. You have no time to read the Bible. You don't read the Bible. You are jittery and frightened about the Holy Spirit and you don't want to do anything about that. So you're not going to have the Word and you're not going to have the Holy Spirit and the devil's laughing his head off. You're no threat to him at all. I mean, you're going to go to heaven with a few bruises, but you're no threat to him at all. But you may be big on the Word and scared stiff about the Holy Spirit or big on the Holy Spirit and not even interested in really getting the Word. That's sort of better from the devil's point of view. If you're into the combination, you are seriously giving him a headache. And I want him to have a whole church full of headaches here. I want him to have a church full of people that make him keep awake at night. Because they're getting to be people of the Word and the Spirit. They're full of the Holy Spirit, but they're also filled with the Word. Let's go on to the prayer. That's the Word of God, one weapon. This is the other one, pray in the Spirit. Now, I've got the phrase twice on the PowerPoint. This is the first one with the, letter, with the number two by it. So pray in the Spirit. Let's get into that. Verse 18 is an interesting one. 
At first, when you read it, particularly in English, with the paragraph breaks, you might think, oh, hang on a minute, is this another subject? Has he moved on from the armour to another subject? It's a new paragraph, isn't it, all the rest of it. But most Greek scholars, they do have a use, most Greek scholars would say very clearly this is the same section of teaching as on the armour and weapons. To quote Gordon Fee again, there are good reasons for thinking that Paul is continuing the metaphor of spiritual armour and that praying in the spirit is to be understood as yet a further weapon in the warfare. There are good reasons for thinking that and it makes sort of sense as you read it. So he's actually talking about another weapon. There's the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and there's praying in the spirit. In actual fact, he probably presses this one a bit further, Paul. He fleshes it out, doesn't he, a bit more. The others are just mentioned in a funny way. But he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Be alert. Keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And then he goes on, actually, to ask them to pray for him in verses 19 to 20. So he really does emphasize prayer. Pray, 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 pray. He seems to repeat himself in those few verses, doesn't he? And those words have a sense of military readiness. You know, pray in all circumstances. All kind of soldiers, Roman soldiers needed to be ready on every occasion. That is part of the context of this. Um, Steve Mayer mentioned this last week. But it is part of the context. Paul knew Roman soldiers only too well. He was often chained alongside one. And a Roman soldier would, by and large, most of the day, 24-7, I suppose he didn't sleep in them, but most of the day he had his armour on, his breastplate but he wouldn't always necessarily have the helmet and the sword and the shield. So there is a difference when he says, take them up. It's a bit like, for us, Second World War fighter pilots who were ready to scramble. So they're sitting there in their flying uh, overalls, but they haven't actually got their helmet and goggles. They haven't maybe got the gloves. And the, the, so they're sitting around drinking tea, but they're dressed and then scramble and they get what they need to get well it's a bit like that with the Romans they were mostly occupying force occupying nations didn't like them (laughs) that would certainly been true in Israel and quite frequently they'd have to go out and calm the crowd down calm is a nice way of saying kill a few people and frighten them and 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 they were ready so that you you had to go out and so there's that sense of readiness about it all. There's that sense that you get, get your sword ready when you need it. You pray when you need it. There's that sense that these are soldiers who are ready at any point, in any circumstance, in this case, to pray. At any point, any circumstance, pray. Don't forget to pray. Problems come, pray. In trouble, pray. Joyful, pray. And that sort of theme comes out in the New Testament. Even James actually writes like that. Paul says a little more, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. What does he mean? I love digging into these phrases. What does he mean, pray in the Spirit? Well, I think we can, we human beings, particularly those of us who are into being religious and Christian, which we all are to a degree, we can emphasize the wrong thing about prayer. We can emphasize the beauty of the words, the length of it, the theological content, Maybe the posture on my knees, standing with my arms up, with my eyes closed or open. And depending on your Christian tradition, you tend to have a little bit of a corner you fight. I think this is the best way to pray, Uh, you know, and so on and so forth. But actually, Paul isn't interested in any of that. It's not about the words you use. It's not about your posture. It's not about whether you're in a religious building or not in a religious building. All occasions, all places, pray in the Spirit. So from his point of view, the big thing isn't the words you use, isn't where you are, isn't whether you're kneeling or standing, it's in the spirit. 
So we've got to learn, how do we pray in the Spirit? What's that mean? Pray in the Holy Spirit on all occasions. That's when it's effective. Well, it's an interesting phrase. It's only used twice in the New Testament, pray in the Spirit. You might think it was used more often. It isn't, that particular phrase. It's used here, and it's used in Jude. Let's pop the Jude verse up. We're talking about praying the Spirit on all occasions. I, I hope the dear person over there, Rob, thank you. You, Oh, wonderful boy. It's very difficult doing my PowerPoints, isn't it? It is. You want to go and give him a, probably go and give him a calming drink, I think. That would be best. So, um, but, but it is because I jump about a bit. But basically, this one, look, is the other time it's used. Dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. I like it because it's sort of linked to battling and building. Praying in the Spirit is linked to battling and building. It's linked in Ephesians to battling and in Jude to building. And those are the two things we should all be busy doing all through our Christian lives. We are battling and fighting and we're building. We're building ourselves up, we're building the church, we're building the kingdom, but we're fighting and fighting off a foe and battling. And both of those, praying in the Spirit, seems to be a key part of how we do it. Now, we haven't time to look at all these scriptures, but Ephesians 2.18 tells us that we have the right of access to God through Jesus, but the power of access, the connection, is through the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved in our prayer. So you have a right to come to the Father because of Jesus. You come in and through Jesus Christ. It's in his name you come. You can boldly come to the throne of grace in time of need. But the Holy Spirit empowers your prayer. He connects you to God. He is the one who actualizes yet again the reality, the legal reality that you have a right to come into the presence of the Father on the basis of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is your connectivity. It's where it it really wires the electricity into you. You have got all the paraphernalia to come. Now you come in the power of the Spirit. And sometimes he will help your prayers. We're told in Romans 8 that when we don't know how to pray as we should, the Holy Spirit helps us. It's verses 26 and 27. Uh, With things we can't utter and groanings and and, and things. Look, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit loves to be involved in prayer. Praying can be and should be in the Holy Spirit. And before you think, oh John, are you setting me a mountain I can climb? Is it only super Christians who pray in the Spirit? No, 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 no. This is an exhortation to ordinary Christians. This is not for apostles and a few high and mighties. All Christians can pray in the Spirit at all times, on all occasions. Otherwise, you wouldn't be told to do it. Right? It's logic, isn't it? But it's actually true logic. You wouldn't be told to do it. You can pray in the Spirit. You don't have to spend six weeks in fasting before you can pray in the Spirit. You don't have to be standing on your head on a holy mountain, sitting in Winchester Cathedral, sitting in the NBC. You don't have to be peaceful. You, you just can do it. Wherever you are, on the basis of who you are in Christ, you connect with God and you say, come Holy Spirit, help me. Help my prayer. God, I'm going to pray in the Spirit. Now, I think there's a few practical aspects that help you to, to do it well. For example, you need to recognize you're dependent on the Holy Spirit, so you consciously encourage him to guide you in your praying. You invite him, if you like, to, Lord, guide me. Holy Spirit, help me. I just really need to intercede for this. Then you go for it. I think you need to ensure you go on being filled with the Spirit. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Go on being filled with the Spirit. That's going to make it easier to pray in the Spirit. I think if you walk after the flesh, 
it's very hard to see you will so easily pray in the Spirit. So I think to walk in the Spirit, endeavouring to obey God, endeavouring to put things right in an ordinary day-to-day way, not asking you to be silly, but just to not be neurotic, but to be sensible in God, that you walk in the Spirit and you don't try and fulfil the lusts of the flesh. That's going to make it a lot more natural to pray in the Spirit because you're walking in the right place. You're on the right wavelength. So that's why, as a Christian, it's important that you do put things right. Quickly repent and ask God to forgive you. Get back into a good connectivity with God. Walk in the Spirit. Try and obey the Spirit. Because then your prayers are going to be more likely to be Spirit-empowered and guided. I would say be a people of praise and worship. Ephesians 5, when it talks about being filled with the Spirit, praise and worship is a pretty important part of that. And so if you're gonna, your actual prayers are going to be on target, you know, bang, 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 on the enemy, they're more likely to come out of someone who is praising and who's open to the Spirit. Not in an abnormal way. We're talking like soldiers. Soldiers do put their weapons down. They do get on, they eat their dinner and do other things. But they are weapons ready. They know how to use them. So as soon as there's a situation, pick it up. That's why poor Barry has to go through it all. They can pick it up and use the thing. Because they're, they're, they, it's not like rusty. They haven't touched it for a year. So we, we are people who are constantly aware of the Spirit. We're walking in the Spirit. We're people of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. So when we pray, we're going to pray in that atmosphere. And we're going to look for the Holy Spirit's direction to our prayers. And he wants to direct them. Let's quickly see. All occasions. All occasions. What's that mean? <laughs> you could tell me, couldn't you? I think it means all occasions. It means anywhere, anytime. You can pray anywhere, anytime. You can pray personally. Let's list them quickly, literally quickly. Personal prayer. So that's private prayer. You, I hope you pray on your own. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus encourages you. Go in, shut the door, get on your own before God. I hope you do that. Make sure that's spirit prayer. It's not just something mechanical. It's just, God help me. It's talking your heart out, pouring out sometimes your heart. Sometimes you're worried, anxious. Well, Philippians 4, 6 says pray. Be anxious for nothing, but bring your requests with thanksgiving. So it, it says there's an occasion to pray. When you're really worried, when you're really troubled, pray. <laughs> uh, James says, is anybody in trouble? Let them pray. So there's an occasion when you hit difficulties and trouble. I think there's times of celebration together with Christians. When you pray and praise, times of difficulty. So you do it on your own, you do it with small groups, you do it in family and friendship groups. You'll find all this modelled in the Bible where friends, two or three, or family maybe as well, pray together. Pray good stuff, pray worried stuff, pray ordinary stuff. Pray for their daily bread. Pray for God's provision. That's an occasion. Pray for a breakthrough provision of God. Then there's whole church together. That's another occasion to pray. And it's clear that in the Bible, the church, the early church, gathered frequently to pray. And there was clearly a power in that prayer. It talks about it with one voice. They prayed all agreeing together. And uh, we need to do that, and we need to get that it is quite important in spiritual warfare. There does seem to be a special power in that, there's a certainly a special authority more than hinted at by Jesus about having you know keys and uh, two or three 
I'm there in the midst and you know what you agree on earth together will be done in heaven there's enough evidence to suggest a, an element of several of us together or the church together praying with one voice is quite powerful if you like it's a heavy weapon in the warfare it's heavy artillery it does some damage to the enemy and lastly all kinds all kinds of prayer well there are different ways of praying you can pray um, thanksgiving and praise I encourage you to do that do you thank God for good things? Do you thank God for your food? Thank God for your family? Thank God for your job, your, your, your home, your car? Do you thank God for ordinary things? Don't just, don't just stick it for like, well, we say thank you for our dinner. That's nice, but I should do it for everything else as well. Be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful you're alive. Be thankful you got here this morning. Honestly, Be thankful. There's Thanksgiving prayer. Do it all the time. Try and get in the habit, almost, a holy equivalent to swearing. What? What are you talking about, John? Oh, well, I, I think there is. I think that's how I operate. That's how I justify it anyway. So what I do is when something good happens, I say, oh, thank you, Jesus. That's great. When something horrible happens, I say, oh, Jesus, help me. What am I supposed to do about that? Now, now it's not, please, I saw all your horrified face. You're so nice. But it's not... I'm not swearing, but I am not using Jesus' name in vain. I'm talking to him about things. Do you know what I mean? So it's like he's on my tongue. And I think you need to, to learn that in a conscious way. So I don't, I don't mean in some vain way, like using the Lord's name in vain, but in an ordinary way. I talk ordinarily to Marion. I don't make song and dance about it every time we talk, do we? Say, Marion, could you make me a cup of tea? Say, Marion, thank you for doing that. I did say thank you, don't I? <laughs> and um, <laughs> just pull the string. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I mean, you know, and sometimes I ask for help. <laughs> I mean, just talk. I mean, it's the same with Jesus, isn't it? If you're in a relationship with him, you need to. There's all sorts. Worship and devotion, but petitions and requests. Obviously, I've touched that. What we might, these are all things in the Bible. Requests are mentioned quite often. You can ask him for things. Jesus kept saying, ask, 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 ask. He said it three times on one occasion. You're encouraged to ask. So why don't you ask? Ask. Ask. <laughs> for what you want, like blind Bartimaeus we've been hearing about. Ask him. And then there's intercession, which is probably asking for other people. So it's not asking for yourself, it's interceding for other people. That's another kind of prayer. It's where you intercede for those you know, love, close to you, and maybe those who you don't know, like the government, like uh, people in another country, like the country. You know, you're interceding, you're praying for others who uh, are bringing your requests on behalf of other people. There are all sorts of prayers. We could go on all morning. There's prayer that's maybe prophetic, where you speak out, you get pictures, and you speak out what you feel the Holy Spirit's giving you in your prayer. It's what I would call consecration prayer, which is where you are battling like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's actually quite important to understand this. There is a place for consecration prayer where you are battling, you know that God's made a big call on your life. It may be a literal call. It may be something you want to obey and you know it's hard. It may be something God's spoken to you about and you are going to battle through and say, okay, Lord, I want to do your will. May I just say, that is the prime setting for that if it be thy will bit. 
that is not necessarily what you put on the end of every sort of prayer. I mean, when Jesus taught us about requests, he used the model of the widow asking the unjust judge and the friend at midnight. And I don't think they came all cap in hand. If it be your will, could I have a bit of bread from my friend? Bang, bang, bang. Give me some bread. I've got some... A friend, you know, the, the widow certainly wasn't like that. She was saying, come on, I want justice. So I think we just got a little bit of a polite English version of prayer sometimes. It's not all, this is this, if it be thy will. I think that can be over super spiritual. It can be lazy because we're not working out what God's will is. We're not thinking about our praying. It can be a sort of coverall, sign-off, thoughtlessly put in. I think it has its place in consecration prayer where you know God's asking you to do something you don't really want to know or you want to do or you're finding it hard and you break through to saying, God, I'm going for this. If it's your, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I just, that's a little bit for free, extra. Because I do think that we sometimes are a little thoughtless about our praying. Jesus actually encouraged a lot of fairly robust, bold request asking. And I think we can do that. Ooh, I could spend all morning on this. I already have. So as we finish, here's a little interesting mod. Here's a picture to have in your head. Let's, as we finish. We looked at two weapons, sword and spirit, and now we looked at prayer. Let us imagine that the Apostle Paul was here this morning. Now, the Apostle Paul is a very experienced, much decorated senior officer in God's army. I think you'd all agree. The Apostle Paul is like one of the great generals. It's like having, uh, I don't know, Wellington or Nelson or Winston Churchill or something in your room. From a church point of view, this is someone who really knows the business. He has led the way for years. So he comes in to speak to us this morning. I think if he spoke to us, you'd all listen. You'd probably listen a bit better than you listen to me, though you're pretty good. But you would listen to the Apostle Paul. Well, I would say to you, he is here this morning, in effect, through words he wrote 2,000 years ago in this letter to the Ephesians. And his closing words on spiritual warfare, almost the closing words of the whole letter, are this. I say to you, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with that in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's...